Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Erica Lee, the author of America for Americans, a history of xenophobia in the United States. This is her fourth book. She's a professor at the University of Minnesota and is the director of the Immigration History Research Center. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Lee. Thank you for having me, Evan. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Some say America is a place for anyone. Professor Lee writes that three-fifths of all the world's immigrants in the 1800s settled in the United States. We learn in elementary school that America was started by people seeking for a new life. I certainly heard that plenty, both at home and in school. Um, they, uh, you're told it was a place that people could have religious freedom in, that it's a place that accepts poor, huddled masses. But at the same time, there's other kinds of talk, talk of border security, of legal immigrants, of undocumented immigrants, of which countries we should accept immigrants from. And along with the talk, there are also actions. Over the centuries, we've seen the Chinese, the Japanese, people from majority Muslim countries, Jews, Catholics, and just about everybody else questioned about whether they belong here in America. So my first question to Dr. Lee is, why does that effort to exclude happen in America? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the big question, right? Um, you know, and I have to say, it's not just, it's not just listeners who's only experience with immigration history may be, you know, years ago in high school or just through popular culture, this idea that uh, the United States is a nation of immigrants, that we welcome people. You know, I, I do this for a living. I write, I teach, I, I research about immigration history. And all of my scholarship has always you know, ended with a, uh, you know, sort of this, this, this main thesis line, which is, it's complicated. It's much more complicated than you would imagine. Um, you know, we have, we certainly have welcomed, um, you know, 80 million people over the last 200 years. But of course, we also do have this ongoing history of demonization, of exclusion. And, you know, I have to say that before the 2016 presidential election, uh, my previous books would sort of always end with, you know, this is a, these are dark chapters in our history. We don't know uh, enough about them. Um, but if we hold on to our essential values and ideals, we, we really will be able to uh, reaffirm our tradition of being a nation of immigrants. And, and after, after 2016, um, with the election of, of Donald Trump on his you know, flat out xenophobic, racist um, message about immigration and then continuing through um, his administration and quite frankly, continuing through the 2020 election as well. Um, I have become an even, you know, firmer believer that it's much more than just this, it's complicated kind of, you know, message or this idea that we switch from being a nation of immigrants, we forget about that, and then 
we become a nation of xenophobia and then we switch back. Um, you know, with this book, I, I really wanted to, to take a different approach and to demonstrate that our xenophobic tradition has been with us from the very beginning. Um, it is rooted in our larger history of slavery and settler colonialism and systemic racism, and that xenophobia is a form of systemic racism. And that to think that one presidential election um, is going to uh, sweep away that history, that tradition, um, is unfortunately uh, too naive. We go back to the beginning, 1755, and a man that everybody has heard of. And when you see Ben Franklin's name at the beginning of this discussion, you go, whoa. So you write that those in power have argued that there were too many immigrants, that immigrants were not assimilating, that they were taking too many jobs, were bringing crime, had dangerous political views, were un-American. Um, who was the first group that was targeted that way, when, and by who? And you start this book with Ben Franklin. So explain how he, how he factors into the story. It really is one of those wow stories, right? Because the other part of the story is that um, the United States has admitted more immigrants from Germany than from any other, than from any other country. And uh, so many Americans do count um, Germany as part of their ancestry. Um, I love, you know, I love going back to Franklin, not only because it does show how endemic those messages are. I mean, you know, change a few of those antiquated words, um, but the the same quotes that that Ben Franklin, uh, you know, has, um, you could you could place those in the 21st century and think that we are um, talking about current President Trump. Um, and who's more American than Ben Franklin, right? I mean, he's, I know, he's right? held up you know, as like this big, the, the figure in the in early colonial history. Absolutely, one of our uh, one of our founding fathers. You know, he describes Germans as a swarm of swarthy aliens uh, who herded together. He says that they'll soon so outnumber us that our language and even our government will become precarious. Uh, you know, so these are these are anti-immigrant messages that are, are with us from the very beginning of our country. They help inform our policies that while we certainly or, um, you know, colonial Americans were certainly um, anxious about the large numbers of German immigrants coming over. As I said before, we never closed the gates. We actually needed white settlers. We explicitly recruited them um, to be part of our colonial experiment, to help settle the land, to help move Pennsylvania further westward um, and on. So we, we tried to regulate immigration. And in fact, one of the most surprising things I found was that uh, colonial Pennsylvania established an immigrant registry. You know, I'm writing this at the same time that uh, President Trump is is putting into place the Muslim ban and and um, this idea that it, you know registration of immigrants is is um, is something new and and dangerous. We, we actually have had this for centuries that predated our our uh, you know the formation of our nation. Um, and so you know how these immigrants fit into this already existing mix of 
Native Americans, enslaved Africans, white settlers is really important and helps to describe, you know, going back to your earlier question, how immigrants evolve into good ones, for example, or remain bad ones is, is really important. So how did this idea develop so early in American history that there were the desirable and the undesirable? And then I guess the next question would be, um, why were we told as kids that this was just a place that everyone wanted to be free in, to have religious freedom in? Yeah. Well, again, it's settler colonialism. Uh, so the, the need for settlers, but not just any settlers, we explicitly wanted white Protestant or European Protestant settlers um, to help. Well, first we needed the laborers. Second, we also needed them to literally, you know, push the boundaries of, of our borders into lands that had either just recently been wrested away from indigenous um, control or were actually in the process of being taken away and the confluence with slavery. We have already from the very beginning of our nation's history um, a white supremacist hierarchy um, and our policies reflect the need to control certain populations and to populate the nation with those who are going to serve the, the needs, economic, colonial, et cetera, social, of our uh, first the colonies and then and then our young nation. So what is what uh, what was the view of slaves that were being brought here? Were they viewed as immigrants or were they so stripped of humanity that they were not even seen as a factor in our country's evolving culture? Their property. Yeah, they are not immigrants. And so and one of the things that has has evolved in the scholarship uh, of, of immigration and migration to the United States is to better um, emphasize the relationship between the free white um, immigration uh, that is recruited um, and encouraged and the forced migration of enslaved Africans and the ways, you know, not only the differences in passage, but obviously the difference in um, freedom, rights, uh, and our definitions of who, who counts, even as a person, of course. How, did the, how do these ideas of, um, of xenophobia then evolve to the point where um, forced removal becomes a factor? Um, how does xenophobia factor into you know, the Andrew Jackson story and the Trail of Tears and these other things that, that saw uh, the removal of people who had been there for centuries? So again, um, when we think of immigration, it's such a broad category. And we have, as you've mentioned before, we have limited most, you know, both in sort of our popular understanding and our, and the scholarship, we've limited our understanding of immigration to um, why people left and the new lives that they were able to achieve in the United States. And when we typically are thinking about the, uh, the quintessential immigrant, it is, it's that view of Ellis Island. It's those famous Lewis Hines photos 
from the early 20th century of European, mostly Southern, Central, Eastern European, mostly peasants, um, sometimes single men, but oftentimes nuclear families, you know, coming with a rucksack, you know, coming with a rucksack and clearly um, foreign, you know, but, but portrayed in that rosy Statue of Liberty message that they will soon remake themselves. And maybe they themselves will have a difficult time, but their children, their children will become mayor of New York, you know, a shop owner, a doctor. Um, a podcast host like, like me. <laughs> right. Right. A few generations down the line. Yeah. A professor, or, right? Or yeah. a professor, right. 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 Um, so we, we have limited our, our purview of immigration to the lands that they left and, the, and then the new lives that they formed here and how they became American. When we broaden our perspective to look at immigration um, more, uh, more sort of holistically, we can see that the migration of foreigners has played such an important role in the United States westward expansion, which, you know, that was the word that was used when I was taught American history, right? Now we understand it as, yeah, who was doing the westward expansion? It's, it's white settlers. Um, but the other way to think about it, of course, is mass forced removal, exodus, forced exile of indigenous peoples. The two work together. You can't, um, you know, you have the government policies and you have warfare that are forcing indigenous peoples um, away, but it's also the, the settlement, right? Homestead Act, which, you know, uh, grants ownership of of property to white settlers, you have to have that massive population of, of new people who are there and squatting on the land and staying there, right? To maintain removal as well as the government policy. So the more that we, we think about that together, um, the, less, the less sustainable it is to maintain those romanticized Ellis Island from Italy to America, um, just for example. Um, what did people say about stories? What did people say about natives as, as removal is happening? What was in the press? What were the, what were the sentiments? Many of the um, public messages during the 1830s, 1840s are very similar to those that had been in place in the colonial era. Indigenous peoples are not uh, worthy stewards of the land. They are not using it um, in the way that um, is necessary or that is right. Um, they are not fit to become citizens. Um, and so there's a manifest destiny of the United States to spread to the West and to take over these lands. You know, one of the, the, the most interesting things that I found in doing this research was the ways in which um, our anti-Indian, anti-Native American policies intersected with our anti-immigrant policies. And 
the perfect sort of confluence of this um, of these two ideas and two uh, worldviews and policies happened in the 1830s up through the 1850s when Irish Catholic immigration is the the main source of the anti-immigrant debate. We've got organized groups, political parties, the Know Nothings, also known as the American Party being established throughout the country, but especially along the Eastern Seaboard. They're explicitly anti-Catholic. They have all these secret, secret rights and and um, oaths and um, and symbols that are um, that co-opt Native American symbols to represent their allegedly, you know, true Americanism. So you'll see in know nothing um, uh, literature and in advertisements, you'll see a Native American in it. The Know Nothing chapters called themselves wigwams. They identified their leaders as sachems or chiefs. They co-opted all of what they thought was to be Native American culture and symbols and, um, and ideas for themselves. And in doing so, they claimed that they were the true natives. This is where we get the first uh, expression of Native American, small n, Native American, meaning native-born American. This is both an act of saying, we are the real Americans, these naturalized immigrant foreigners who are growing in number and even running for office, they should not have as much political power as they have because they don't know what they're doing. But we, we've been natives to this country, descendants of Puritans, descendants of the true American stock. That was part of the message. But the other part was, and the real natives, they're not a factor anymore. <laughs> they're gone and we wanna keep them gone. And you know, we are now taking on this mantle of native, nativity of nativeness to reflect on both of these groups. So you're using the you're using terms like unfit and um, not capable of participating properly in our democracy or in whatever passed for it back then. What I want to ask is, and this is going to sound like a cheeky question, but it's not meant to be. Was life among those who were making these xenophobic attacks? Was it so neat and organized and clean and well put together? And was society that orderly that any potential um, obstacle in the way or something that would spring up would throw everything into chaos? Or was it a bit more messy than you might be led to believe based on these xenophobic attacks? It's absolutely messy. Um, we do know that... Racism, racism and xenophobia, uh, first of all, are, are always present, but they do get expressed in much more explicit ways during times of crisis. And so just to keep on this mid-19th century um, time period, the, the, um, the, um, the, the leaders and the, um, 
real center of power for the know-nothings is in New England. New England in the mid-19th century is experiencing dramatic change. Many of the young people are part of that westward migration. So the young people are leaving. Um, Boston and New England is, is, you know, the sort of, it's losing some of its prestige um, in relation to New York City. It's losing some of its economic, political prestige in relationship to other, um, you know, growing urban centers and, and political centers. There's feel, a feeling of crisis and insecurity. Meanwhile, um, as they're feeling displaced, white, Protestant, uh, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant Americans, all of these Irish Catholics are coming over. And by the 1840s and 50s, they are impoverished. They have been ravaged by the famine. They're poor. Um, they don't have enough money to move beyond the seaport. So they are landing and staying in New York and Boston. And because our laws allow them to become naturalized citizens, they naturalize um, and grow in political power. So it is very much a feeling of displacement um, that is not only animating these self, you know, so-called and self-proclaimed Native Americans, um, but also we see this in, in really every um, chapter of xenophobia in, in the United States. Well, your book then gets to the 1870s. After we get through the know-nothings and their anti-Catholicism, um, uh, I have to say that um, I've read a lot of American history. I've got hundreds of books just to my, to my right here. Um, and I did not fully grasp the, the full fury of this time period towards the Chinese until I read your book, America for Americans. This chapter starts with a description of San Francisco and thousands of people who gathered to address, to address what, you, what is called the Chinese question. Um, so what is the Chinese question? How was it raised at first? And why were the Chinese coming to America? It's, it saddens me that in 2020, um, we still have so little knowledge collectively as a country about um, Chinese exclusion. This is one of the reasons why I went to graduate school, why I do what I do is because I too, but many years ago, had this aha moment where I read about the Chinese Disclosure Act for the first time and said, what? is going on and how come I've never heard about this or read about this, especially because this is my family's history. My grandparents on both sides of my family had been separated due to the exclusion laws. They both you know, immigrated through Ellis Island and Angel Island and even within my own family, we, ha we were not talking about this. Um, so I'm I'm glad I'm glad that this uh, this has this what this chapter has helped to solve that problem. Um, the Chinese question is the question of of um, you know many of the things that we've talked about before. We need foreign laborers on the Pacific Coast. Chinese had first arrived as part of the gold rush, um, but then so the, the so Pacific people, Coast. 
so people were coming to get gold just the way people were going from the eastern portion of the United States headed west to California. People were coming from China. They heard the same news about gold under the streams and in they came. Absolutely. It took a little bit longer for them to come across <laughs> right, the Pacific Ocean, right. but it's they absolutely ride, did. Right. You know, right. Yeah. You know, uh, gold rush historians talk about how the world rushed in, right? Mexicans, French, Russians, um, and Chinese came uh, to, to California. Uh, so they're there um, in the 1850s, but uh, they soon become explicitly and very energetically recruited to build the country's first transcontinental railroad, right? The Union Pacific, the Central Pacific meeting in, in Promontory Point, Utah in 1869. Um, Chinese make up 90% of the labor going from West to, um, to, um, to, to Utah. Um, so they're recruited. They're foreign immigrant labor. That's part of our long tradition of recruiting foreign immigrant labor to do um, work <laughs> that uh, that needs to be done. That um, that at least the employers think that white Americans aren't aren't willing to do. Um, and then they stay, <laughs> and that's the problem. They are a fraction, a tiny fraction of the number of immigrants who are coming to the United States, yet the debate that spirals up around Chinese immigration is so disproportionately huge. And, the, and we have to ask why. The reason why is because they are the, the first and largest non-white immigrant group to be coming in such large numbers um, other than enslaved Africans who are not, you know, immigrants, and Mexicans who remained in the Southwest, which had been Mexico, right? Uh, so they, they, they represent this, this big problem. Are they, do we treat them like European immigrants? They're clearly not white. Uh, or do we treat them more like African Americans and like Native Americans? And the answer, is always, and really had never been debated, is that they are like African-Americans and Native Americans. Our existing naturalization laws prevent anyone who is not white from becoming naturalized citizens, so they already come with, uh, you know, they enter into an unequal um, system. The, um, the, the political powers that be, the, the, the growing labor movement, come together to identify Chinese laborers as the, not only just a, an immigration problem, but a problem that impacts the very future of the United States and the future of American and white civilization. The idea is that if you don't stop Chinese immigration now, their teeming millions will flood across the Pacific and take over the Pacific coast and then run across the United States. So again, this question of displacement, of displacement of, of white settlers specifically by a, a non-white group is the threat. So talk about how these exclusion acts uh, take hold and what they are. Um... And um, yeah, let's just do that first. Describe what the exclusion acts are and what their impact is. So like many 
um, laws in our country. Some of the first attempts to um, limit the freedom of movement of Chinese happen at the state and local level. So beginning really in the 1850s, California actually tries to bar Chinese immigrants from the state and um, the US government and Supreme Court say, actually immigration is a federal matter, not a state matter. But from the very sort of beginning of their presence, uh, local officials are trying to limit their movement. They pass discriminatory laws that are clearly aimed at, um, uh, at curbing the types of jobs that Chinese can, can, can work in, um, the conditions in which they live. Um, and in 1876, the, the pressure, the lobbying from California and other Pacific groups for the federal government to do something reaches ahead. And 1876 is super important because it's the first, it's a presidential election year, and it's the first time that um, California's electoral votes, we're talking about this the week after the election, you know, mm -hmm. that California's electoral votes um, might decide the election. And so for the first time, both Democrats and Republicans are paying attention to this thing that had until then been considered a local issue. We don't need to worry about the Chinese. I'm in, you know, I'm in Maryland. What do I care? There's no Chinese here. But now it becomes important. And so both parties pledge to stop um, Chinese immigration. And we have the very first federal commission on immigration. Uh, senators and congressmen travel from across the country and, and land in San Francisco in 1876 in the Palace Hotel, which was the fanciest, most expensive, elaborate hotel on the Pacific Coast. And they hear witnesses, uh, they hear testimony from dozens of witnesses. There's basically one, um, one minister who says the Chinese aren't so bad, and then 99% of all the others, whether they're public health officials, police officers, you know, um, lob uh, lobbyists and, and labor leaders all talk about the enormous danger uh, of Chinese immigration. They're immoral, they spread disease, they, um, they're taking away jobs, they're coming after our women, they're going to be flooding into the country and, and, and taking over. But there winds, uh, and that up being, leaves, there winds up being violence. I mean, there winds up, not only do the acts take hold, but there's violence against people and it's stunning, oh, I, vicious violence. Yes, that the, the Exclusion Act is passed in 1882. It bars Chinese laborers. It, it affirms the prohibition of Chinese immigrants from becoming naturalized citizens. It's supposed to be a temporary measure only in place for 10 years. It gets extended, extended, extended. It becomes permanent. It does not get repealed until 1943. So 61 years of a quote unquote temporary measure. And what is fascinating about that is that you would think that once you exclude a group, Americans would feel, you know, breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, we solved that problem. Uh, let's move on. Uh, because in 1887, there's only 10 Chinese who are allowed into the country. But in fact, what the Exclusion Act does, and we see this with other immigration policies, it legitimizes, it justifies 
xenophobia and racism. And there are still Chinese who remain in the United States, and there are still Chinese who continue to come, um, albeit with lots of difficulty. And by the 18, uh, 18, mid-1880s, we have uh, campaigns to drive out the entire population of Chinese from towns and cities. And we're not just talking little towns, we're talking Seattle, Tacoma, um, massive violence, massacres in LA. Can you describe, um, just, I mean, I hate to get too gory, but describe a massacre so we, we can really get a sense of what these folks were coming through. Yeah. I'm sorry, we're going through. Yep. So in 1871, there, there was a, um, a murder of a uh, Chinese man. It, the press say that it was um, gang-related, two rival gangs um, were, were fighting and, um, and someone was killed. It turns into a sort of showcase of look at what the Chinese are doing, how violent they are, and um, how this violence could impact what, what we're doing uh, or our community. Um, there becomes a coordinated effort by vigilantes to uh, target and to um, apprehend, but not, not legally, um, the perpetrators, you know, Chinese immigrant men who believed to be involved in this um, gang violence. And it's a very public affair. They basically, you know, go into Chinese homes, they, they grab um, people, they're marching them down the street, they are marching, um, gal uh, you know, sort of like scaffolding that they're building to hang them down the street. Um, it's not done in the middle of night. It's done with police, you know, looking on. Women and children are lining the street watching this happen. It is a, I mean, it's very similar to what we know of uh, lynchings in the South. They were community affairs, right? It's not just the KKK and cross burnings in the middle of night. These are, these are legitimate um, affairs. And 17 Chinese are, are hanged. It's, it remains um, the largest mass lynching um, in U.S. history. It's hard, it's hard to listen to that. Is there a memorial or marker for where this happened? You know, that's a fascinating question. To my knowledge, no. And, and this is one of, the, one of the things that I found throughout researching this book, is that there are many, many sites of um, forced removals uh, of immigrants. I'm thinking about the forced removal of Chinese from Seattle's Chinatown. Um, in 1885, 86, but also the mass removal of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans from LA. And in those two cases, I, I literally did go on sort of a detective hunt around the, the two cities, looking for markers, memorials, looking for you know, historical explanations. I could not find any in Seattle. In LA, there is a marker it's hidden away 
Um, but there is a marker that does recognize the state of California's efforts in removing Mexican and Mexican Americans during the Great Depression. Um, I would love to see more public commemoration and acknowledgement of these um, past acts because without them, this history continues to get obscured and ignored um, because that nation of immigrants, that romanticized vision is so powerful. Um, it, it just takes over. It takes over and replaces um, what is also an equally powerful and, and horrific history of violence and exclusion. You know, not to belabor the point, and this is a rhetorical question, but can you imagine what it was like for those people to be pulled out of their homes and 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 violently um, attacked like that? Um, you know, it's uh, it's um, uh, I, I I wish I could say it was hard to believe, but um, it's a it's just a, a I just can't imagine what what that was like. Um, so now we think about the early 1900s. Um, we think about a time when my ancestors came, uh, Haya Axelbank came in 1909 from Antwerp to Ellis Island. Uh, with uh, She came with three children. Um, and one of them is my, one of those children is one of my great, great grandmothers. Um, but uh, these big boats filled with people. And, and this is sort of the immigrant history that we're all sort of taught in, in school as this neat little time period where people were, teeming into uh, American uh, shores. So, so you have Ellis Island, you have the Irish, you have Italians, you have Jews. Um, why, you don't have to go through the whole history of each one, but why do those groups start coming here by boat? What is so attractive about America to people who were trying to get out of where they were coming from? Most are looking for economic security and, and some like Jews uh, fleeing the pogroms in Russia are fleeing for their lives. They are fleeing um, persecution and they come knowing and planning on staying rather than many, um, many, including those from, from Italy and uh, Eastern Europe and, and China are coming to try it out. They, they may not, they may not, plan on staying forever and ever and ever yet. They, they don't know yet. Um, many are being recruited. They're being recruited either by uh, labor agents um, in their homelands. They're being recruited by friends and family who are already here. Um, the letters, the America letters that get sent back, and there are versions of these going to Japan, going to um, Norway, going to Italy, um, going to Russia they are describing really paradise, you know, and often glossing over yeah. some of the hard, yeah. <laughs> the hard Well, truth. you want your relatives to join you, don't you, right? You can't say how tough it is, right? Yeah. That's right, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, they're talking about, you know, how, how life is better. And for many, it, it really is, you know, whether they're, they're heading to, um, to establish farms in the upper Midwest, like in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where, you know, where I am, or joining to, um, <laughs> to, to work in, work in the, the clothing factories, um, or the meat packing factories, meat processing factories. Um, they are, they are coming, 
you know, for economic security. Sometimes the economic security is not necessarily to build new lives in the United States, but to actually put a down payment on that farmland back in your home village because so, it's been willed away over the generations. So what is the reception here? I mean, you know, we're talking about xenophobia. So how does whatever passed at that point as the mainstream of American society view these groups coming in? Well, for Southern, Eastern, and Central Europeans, this is the next debate after Chinese immigration. Um, they are from Europe, but at the same time, we've got the rise of, of scientific racism, of eugenics. And so we have, um, you know, many leading uh, um, so-called scientists who are, who are warning that these groups are not the best stock. They are inferior. They're the racial inferiors of Europe. And there's, again, this hierarchy that gets established, but now it's not just white, black, Asian, native. It's Nordic, <laughs> Celtic, Magyar, um, Hungarian. Uh, you know, what we think of as ethnic groups hmm. are believed to be races. So the Celtic race is usually violent, has an uneven temper, is lazy, um, does not have the full intellectual capabilities as the Nordic race, is not, does not have the leadership capabilities as the Nordic race. The Nordics are the Western um, Europeans. And these ideas get translated into policy. So by the 1920s, we have these discriminatory national origins quotas. We keep the doors open to immigrants from Western and Eastern, sorry, Western and Northern Europe, but we drastically restrict it from immigration from Southern, Central and Eastern Europe. And we shut the doors altogether to Asians. We establish the border patrol, it soon becomes a crime to enter the country without documentation. We start moving into a, 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 an immigration enforcement regime that I think many listeners would recognize today. Deportation, exclusion, detention, um, criminal um, apprehensions across the border rather than, <laughs> rather than no border patrol and um, and and government officials looking the other way when people do cross. Teddy Roosevelt is um, has left behind an extraordinary number of things to this country. He is on Mount Rushmore um, because of how much land and other natural resources he protected from development. Um, he um, certainly brought America um, into a place where it was willing to fight wars not on its own, uh, on its own land. Um, he was a, a progressive in, in some ways. He certainly helped pass a number of rules and laws that have um, today are just taken for granted as being uh, child labor being one, but, but there are a number of things that are just taken for granted and Teddy Roosevelt did those things. However, in 1916, he also gave the America for Americans speech. So I would like you to describe what that speech was about and what he said. 
This is a great example. You know, Teddy Roosevelt is, is also um, known for his 100% Americanism speech as well, right? The, you can't be, you can't be hyphenated. You can't be um, German-American. And that was the example that he specifically used. Um, he was very much um, concerned about the assimilation of those immigrants who could be, who were considered to be assimilable, meaning Eastern, Central, um, and Southern Europeans. Other groups were like Asians, were not considered to be assimilable. And so he really wanted to uh, promote this idea that you should give up your foreignness and become 100% American, but he also, knew or he believed, like other eugenicists, that it wasn't just a matter of curbing immigration and forcing these immigrants to assimilate. He told white Anglo-Saxon Americans, specifically mothers, um, that it was really up to them to, to uh, produce <laughs> the right kinds of Americans. Um, one of the things that immigration restrictionists did was they didn't just lobby against um, immigration, but they also chided uh, white educated American women for going off and doing other things like getting a college education and wanting to work outside the home. They felt like it was really their role to, um, to produce white American children. Um, and he, Teddy Roosevelt argued that if, if, if Americans abandon this, this duty to reproduce, then in two or three generations, all true Americans, real quote, uh, would, would be on the point of extinction. So this is again, you know, America for Americans means white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Americans. It is a white supremacist message. At what point, um, well, let's do, let's talk about internment next. Um, you know, we have a limited, a limited amount of time. We could keep going on, on certain topics here, but let's talk about Japanese internment because that comes up a lot. Um, so first of all, uh, describe what World War II does to the image of Japanese who are living in the United States. Um, describe what it was like to be Japanese living in the United States. and um, what it was like for them when all of a sudden they've got these targets on their backs because of a war that America is fighting overseas. It is, you know, one of the most important things to remember is that this doesn't just happen with Pearl Harbor. Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants, um, the ways in which we see immigrants in the United States is very much relational. So when, when, when the Chinese first came, they are sort of seen through this lens of, okay, African-Americans, Native Americans, and Irish, you know, where do they fit in? When Japanese immigrants come, they're seen through the lens of, well, how do we see Chinese, you know, and are they the same? And the, quest, the, the answer was, yes, they are, they are not white. Um, they are not fit to be citizens. Um, they are laborers. We don't want too many of them coming over. Um, 
But the difference with Japanese immigrants is that they are coming from a rising imperial power, a strong and you know, economically and militarily um, advanced um, empire versus China or Ireland um, or Italy. I mean, the, Japan is a country that is winning wars, that is expanding its footprint. Um, they are considered a threat. And this is where it's important to think about the relationship between international relations and xenophobia and race in the United States. So Japanese immigrants have this added level of danger to them because the question is, are they really just um, the friendly strawberry farmer here in California? Or could they also be a spy for the emperor of Japan? And, you know, is this a, this growing population, couldn't they be uh, activated when it comes to war? And so they are considered a national security threat long before Pearl Harbor. Um, so that when Pearl Harbor does happen, the U.S. government actually already has lists in that it has compiled of who are considered to be the most dangerous enemy aliens, a new legal category. Can you describe what it was like for someone who was living a quote-unquote normal life in, uh, as a Japanese American and to have someone come to your house and say, come with us? Can you just, just, I mean, this is sort of the same question I asked you about the Chinese um, uh, folks who are here. Um, can you just put me in the shoes of someone living during this time period who was fearful that they were going to be taken and then were? I have to say that this is this chapter on World War II is one of my favorite chapters in this book because I was able to use oral histories um, from the Densho Project, which has been collecting Japanese American interviews and documents related to World War II incarceration. Um, and in this chapter, I really frame the history of Japanese American incarceration and the incarceration of Japanese Latin Americans, which is a completely um, unknown chapter in our U.S. history, I'm able to frame this around two specific individuals. So the first one is Betty Marita. Um, she, is, she is eight years old. She's eight years old when, um, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. They live in um, Oregon near Hood River. She's from a large Japanese-American family. Um, they have a very peaceful coexistence in Hood River with white neighbors and classmates. Um, but as soon as Pearl Harbor happens, things turn uh, a different way. Their, their dog gets shot <laughs> on December 7th. Um, the Hood River police chief comes and talks to the Japanese American um, community and warns them to stay at home, to use the English language if possible, to not congregate in one place. And it sort of demonstrates to Betty as this young girl, something's about to change. You know, uh, I no longer feel safe. Um, 
we go through with her with her interview to understand um, that soon her family starts burning um, anything in their home that might be considered Japanese because the US government is going from home to home to home searching for contraband, looking for things like any maps that um, Japanese Americans might have that the government believes they're using to give the Japanese empire, you know, detailed geographic information and things like that. Um, and, and then they, they are forced from their homes, are sent to um, a dilapidated um, uh, assembly center and then to hastily constructed, unsanitary, crowded uh, incarceration camps for, for the duration of the war. And you're scared and you're alone and, you know, were they, were they kept with their families or separated? Kept with their families. Um, the Japanese Americans who are born in the United States, like Betty, are completely um, confused because they grew up believing that they were American. They do not know Japan. They know nothing, you know, about um, the Japanese empire. And, and they now realize that they have been classified as, as, as enemies. Um, and so this is, it, it's a, you know, it's a huge blow to, to the community economically, um, socially, culturally, the communities are split up. There are many who just never, you know, never, um, never heal from, from this trauma. If you can describe the 60s here, this is when a lot of different laws are passed that give human and political rights to African Americans. But talk about what LBJ signed at Liberty Island. Um, you have a picture of this uh, in, uh, in your book. And I guess the accompanying question would be, is xenophobia always accompanied by a law or does the, is the reverse true? Do laws stop xenophobia? Well, and the other question that I asked in this chapter is, does xenophobia die <laughs> with civil rights? Right. Um, you know, so so the 1960s. This is the way that I. This is the way that I learned um, immigration history. This is, uh, and the timeline goes. It was really, really bad in the 1920s. Xenophobia reached a high point. This is when we passed those discriminatory national origins quotas. And the Klan is rising again and these other Klan, things, yeah. Yep, Klan is rising. Immigration reaches a historic low in 1960. And then JFK, LBJ, the Civil Rights Movement, um, and activism by many you know, immigrant uh, organizations, especially Italian-Americans, Jewish-Americans, um, et cetera, pushed for change. And we got that change in the 1965 Immigration Act. Immigration historians have often described the 65 Act as the, the civil rights law for immigration. And much of that, that um, idea remains true. It abolished the national origins quotas. It made it um, illegal to discriminate um, on the handing out of immigrant visas based on national origin. Um, it did result in the reopening of, of um, the United States to many of the world's immigrants, especially from Asia, Latin America, and Africa. But 
it is much more complicated than that. And I did not realize, and many others, you know, um, were just starting to, to pick this law apart and understand what the motivations are. So I went back into the personal papers and congressional records of, of those who were involved in creating the law, but specifically um, one of the lawmakers who had always been known as a, a hardliner and who was really uh, responsible for, for putting the brakes on JFK and LBJ's more liberal um, vision of immigration reform. And we now know that the law was, yes, it was intended to end discrimination, but everyone believed that the groups that would benefit most would be European Americans. The Italian Americans, Hungarians, Poles, Greeks, Jewish Americans who were now part of the uh, political establishment. Um, and the idea was it, when we change the immigration law, these groups are going to be the ones who are going to continue to come. We will maintain our white ethnic makeup in the United States. Literally in the congressional record, um, lawmakers are asking the question, is this going to open up the United States to a flood of, of Latin Americans, to uh, communist orientals, to the hordes of savages from the Congo? And the, the, the sponsors of the bill said, no, 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 don't worry. Uh, so the intention was to keep immigration mostly from Europe. Um, we, we know now that that didn't happen for a number of, of different reasons. And it is exactly this backlash, this demographic change in immigration, along with many other changes in the United States, but it is this backlash to what has happened in the past 55 plus years that helps explain where we are today and how it is that immigration has continued to be a major political issue through Clinton, through Bush, through Obama and Trump. So, uh, you know, I... <laughs> I, I knew this was going to take a long time because the history of xenophobia is unfortunately so long in the United States. So do you mind, uh, we're over our time now, but do you mind if I ask a couple of more questions about Please. Two? Okay. Yeah, no, this so is great. Two, two specific groups. One is we have to talk about um, California and what role that played in the xenophobia towards Mexican Americans. This is something that is now continuing 30, maybe well, 40 years after the Save Our State um, movement. So can you describe Save Our State and how um, it got to the point where you have a leading presidential candidate who the person who became president said they're bringing drugs, crimes, uh, bringing drugs, crime, rapists, and some I assume are good people. <sighs> we have um, a confluence of economic, political, racial um, crises happening um, throughout the country, but uh, it starts getting seeded in California in the 1980s and, and 1990s. And one of the things that I, I would like to emphasize is that xenophobia is not just about immigration. Immigration becomes a flashpoint um, for many of, you know, the inequalities or the social ills um, 
that Americans are feeling. Um, so we see this in, in California in the early 1990s. The, the economy is tanking. Um, you do have rapid demographic change. You have racial unrest um, following Rodney King. Um, and you have a growing conservative um, movement, growing conservative activism. So with the recession in California, um, you start seeing you start seeing a, a message that that's very, very similar to all other previous historical eras, you know, when we're talking about um, xenophobia, immigrants, too many, not assimilating, taking away jobs, um, you know, threatening the United States. But now we have a, uh, a new movement that is going even further um, to not just talk about uh, closing the borders or stopping immigration, but also to punish, to punish, to deny rights and benefits. So in 1994, Californians passed Proposition 187, which is called, nicknamed Save Our State. And the goal was to make the act of entering the country without um, authorization grounds for denying a whole host of public benefits, including education and health services. It also, to undocumented immigrants, it also started this practice of requiring public employees like teachers to report anyone suspected of being in the United States without proper documentation to the federal uh, authorities. This is what I think of as um, one of the most important turning points in explaining how we get to where we are today in 2020, where it's not just illegal immigrants that are being identified as the, the scourge, but they're US citizen-born children, um, all people who might be um, Mexican appearing. Um, you have you know, more um, public support for increased enforcement far beyond the border, but into, into our communities. Um, and, and the beginnings of, you know, much greater deportation, detention, militarization of the border. What was the result of 9-11, um, particularly when it came, when it comes to Muslims? Uh, after 9-11, I remember sitting in my dorm room in college and George W. Bush gets on TV and says, he spoke quite elo eloquently, our beef is not with Muslims, but with terrorists. Um, but what was the next 15, 20 years like in terms of xenophobia towards people who are either Arabic appearing or Muslim and or Muslim. I remember 9-11 very, very clearly as well because I was about to head into class. Um, this is before all classes were canceled that day. Um, and I was teaching Asian American history and we had not gotten far in the semester, you know, cause it was just September. But the big question that my students and I talked about was, could Muslims be interned like Japanese Americans? And, uh, you know, I said, God, you know, wow, I, I obviously hope not, but let's, let's, you know, we, we're going to have to wait and see. I remember how relieved I was when Bush made that speech, his, um, 
um, Islam is, is peace speech. Right. Um, and he gave several addresses about that. He did. Yeah. 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 He went to a Absol- mosque. Yeah. Yep. And what a relief that was, you know, like I did point out to my students, this is important. You know, what a president says is important. But then of course, what was happening under Ashcroft, um, this is um, attorney general, you know, was a much, uh, and it was public, you know, but, but also um, very well executed reformulation of immigration away from integration and naturalization and immigration as part of Homeland Security. This is when we get established to the Department of Homeland Security and when ICE gets uh, formed and, um, and uh, Customs and Border Protection get folded into Homeland Security, meaning that immigration is now a national security issue. It, what, it's no longer in the Department of Justice where it was focused on certainly law enforcement, but also the Immigration and Naturalization Service was about coming and naturalizing, (laughs) coming and integrating into into the country. Um, Two-step process. Yeah, and and there's uh, many government programs that uh, require Muslim registry, that are searching for terrorists, don't find any, but do find uh, a number who have overstayed their visas and who are then um, who are then deported. But this is the beginning of a uh, you know coordinated uh, government surveillance, both at the federal and at the local um, um, levels of of Arab Americans and and Muslim Americans, and um, a growth in extreme Islamophobia and what um, many organizations and scholars have called the Islamophobia network, the Islamophobia industry that involves media personalities, um, that involves, you know, organizations that are spreading um, the idea that Muslims are uh, invading the United States, um, that they're a Trojan horse, um, of terrorists and that Sharia law, you know, is is threatening the constitution. This directly leads to um, candidate Trump's pronouncement of a complete and total shutdown of Muslims to the United States in December of 2015, which I remember so clearly because I stood in front of my students um, in another, you know, another classroom and said, you know, you all, we, we just finished studying, um, you know, a history of immigration, including the Exclusion Acts, the Chinese Exclusion Acts. Um, I, I have to tell you, I never thought in my lifetime that I'd be standing in front of you and saying, in all seriousness, that a, a presidential candidate who has a chance at winning the presidency, has just proposed a policy that is much harsher than the Exclusion Act. You know, and we have to, to, to acknowledge this um, after studying this history and how tragic it was for our country. You've done a lot of writing, a lot of reading, a lot of studying. We've done a lot of talking here today. This has been our longest episode here on Axel Bank Reports. Um, have you been able to answer the question, why America, the most diverse country in the world, always seems to be wrestling with who belongs? <laughs>
It is a question, yeah, that keeps me up at night. Um, but it's not a new question. I, I mean, I, I think the most important way that I can answer that is that we have always had, we've always been asking this question. That is the, that is the foundation upon which our country has been built. And the way in which we've answered that question has been one that's been informed by our history of slavery, by our history of settler colonialism, and then immigration. We've always had felt a need to establish and maintain a white supremacist order and control of our country. And where immigrants fall into that, that scale, either up and down or a spectrum of white to black, has been um, you know, the most important and determining factor of, of, of us answering which immigrants belong and which ones do not. Dr. Erica Lee, author of America for Americans, A History of Xenophobia in the United States. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Certainly check out that book and her Twitter profile, which is at prof underscore Erica Lee. Her website is ericalee.org. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.